Hello, everybody. This is Marshall Poe. I'm the editor of the New Books Network. NBN listeners like to read books and buy them. So we thought we'd tell you that right now, our friends at Princeton University Press are having a remarkable site-wide sale. You can get 50% off books, including ebooks and audiobooks, with the code 50, F-I-F-T-Y, at checkout until May 31. You can save some real money on Princeton University Press books. I encourage you to go there and check it out. Hi, welcome to New Books in Psychoanalysis. My name is Tracy Morgan, your host, and uh, today we'll be interviewing Dr. John Mills uh, about his most recent publication, Conundrums, a Critique of Contemporary Psychoanalysis, published by Rutledge. Uh, Dr. Mills is a philosopher, a psychologist, and a psychoanalyst. He's on the editorial board of Psychoanalytic Psychology, the editor of two book series, uh, as well as the author of 11 books, including um, uh, origins on the genesis of psychic reality, which was published by McGill Queens University Press 2010. Dr. Mills, um, like New Books in Psychoanalysis, is a winner of uh, uh, the Gradiva Award from the National Association for the Advancement of Psychoanalysis. He won for his book Origins in 2011. And New Books in Psychoanalysis, we're proud to say, has just won um, in the category of new media. Um, in 2012. Dr. Mills uh, maintains a private practice as well as runs a mental health corporation in Ontario, Canada. Um, and uh, in, today we'll be speaking with him um, about his critique of, uh, of the relational turn um, and its philosophical um, underpinnings. And he raises questions about the use of postmodernism, uh, whither goest the body, the unconscious, and drives in the turn toward the here and now and um, toward uh, relating and ways of relating as being made primary um, in the uh, consulting room. Um, and uh, I think that uh, people who are interested in these issues of self-disclosure, critiques of the analyst's authority, um, uh, who knows, does the analyst know anything anyway? Um, and um, should the analyst um, be in a position of uh, the one who is supposed to know? Um, and other critiques that the relational movement has um, have leveled on uh, the more classical analytic approach. Um, all of those uh, kinds of topics are going to be taken up here. And uh, hope that you'll enjoy. We encourage you to um, go and like us on Facebook. Why not? And we also encourage you to um, to write in if you have commentary um, and to let people know um, about this interview and about this program. Um, so let's uh, move forward to the interview without further ado. Hi, and welcome to New Books in Psychoanalysis. Um, my name is Tracy Morgan, your host as always, and today we'll be speaking with um, Dr. John Mills about his book, Conundrums, which uh, has a subtitle, A Critique of Contemporary Psychoanalysis, published by Rutledge. Um, welcome, Dr. Mills, to New Books in Psychoanalysis. Thank you for having me. You're, you're uh, very welcome. We're excited to have you here today. Um, in fact, uh, when I read your book, I thought, I'm not trained in philosophy, but I was extremely interested in many of the ideas. I... Um, the book has a critique of the relational psychoanalytic movement and um, that I found um, very compelling. Um, and it was a, these were ideas, I guess, sort of unthought knowns that had been floating around in my mind for quite some time. Um, and reading your book um, was almost like putting thoughts that I had and hadn't articulated um, fully into words. So it's, it's a treat um, to have you here. Would you, would you tell us a bit, um, just 
set it up for the, the listeners. Um, tell us about your book. Uh, well, broadly, I, I believe it is a contribution to the history of ideas uh, in terms of um, where psychoanalysis had, has come from and where it is today. I, I'm primarily interested in this project by um, explicating various types of, of paradigms within contemporary thought, and that mainly is within the relational camp, as well as intersubjective and postmodern theories. So I, I am trying to um, provide a systematic critique of the con contemporary field, but I, I'm certainly not inclusive. I, I do not entertain um, you know, contemporary empirical research or, or neuroscience uh, or other dimensions that um, uh, certainly are worthy of looking at. I just had to limit the scope of this project to mainly those three areas. And I, I'm broadly looking at um, uh, theory as well as um, modes of practice, as well as politics, uh, ethical parameters of our practice, and uh, also approaching um, some type of consilience in the field. So in a nutshell, that, that's what I'm uh, trying to broadly get at. Mm -hmm. um, what drew you to focus, um, as I think you do, I think you focus a bit more on relational uh, work as opposed to intersubjective work. What, what was it about relational thinking that seemed to um, capture um, your attention and got you um, wanting to, say, to speak to that tradition? Well, for one, I, I would want to say that I practice as a relational analyst. So I, I'm very much drawn to uh, the, um, I would say, freedom and humanness and, and flexibility that the relational movement has brought to the field in terms of opening up, opening up a certain permissible space for us to act in, in the consulting room in ways that Perhaps the the classically trained um, uh, you know analyst or, or caricature of the analyst might might appear like. So that that is one reason why I was drawn to reading the literature because I found um, in many ways a, a refreshing point of view. But um, also within the uh, within the way of doing research um, and reading a variety of different people, I was also struck by, uh, you know, certain, um, a lack of philosophical sophistication, and particularly looking at how relationality is being um, pitted against in a binary fashion against uh, Freudian um, metapsychology. Okay. And in my view, that that's misguided and not necessary. So I I think there was certainly um, a critique along the lines of theory as I'm reading, but at the same time uh, feeling an identification with uh, the liberties of practice. Mm -hmm. Do you think um, I I wonder as I, I've read a lot of and, and I've interviewed um, a number of relational thinkers and I wonder what it is about. Um, why this is an American phenomena, and I know you're Canadian, so you can look at look at uh, look at, at uh, this phenomena as sort of a cultural um, 
you have a different vantage point, let's put it this way. And it strikes me as a very American movement. Um, I'm wondering, is it possible that the emphasis on relatedness um, has made psychoanalysis somehow, I've heard people say this, more palatable, it's less frightening, um, it's uh, more civilized than, let's say, the emphasis on, on the drives and the unconscious? Do you have any thoughts about that? Well, um, it's a broad topic. I, I would think, on one hand, you're absolutely correct. When, when we talk about what do you do, you know, how do you relate to people? Like, what do you say in, in, in your sessions? That the last thing that people would probably expect is for someone to be silent, say nothing, um, you know, withhold certain humanness, mm-hmm. and then spew out interpretations down the road. I, I don't think that any of us would probably keep very many people in our practice if, uh, if that's how we acted. Right. Uh, but in terms of, um, you know, jettisoning the notion of drives and the unconscious, I, I you know, I just cannot uh, fathom that that would be a very, um, you know, useful, let alone a productive or, um, you know, or fruitful project because that would be jettisoning the very foundations of our profession. And and it's important that we historically understand um, where we come from, as well as the key tenets that um, undergird what we we buy. And and one thing is that, you know, classical uh, theory is certainly not dead by any means. And uh, we have to appreciate the nature of embodiment. Mm-hmm. So that when we speak about drive, that's really what we're getting at, how, how the complexities uh, of our embodiment is enacted. And, and clearly, if we are to jettison the notion of that, we are also precariously having to, um, you know, uh, displace an unconscious ontology. So I cannot envision psychoanalysis flourishing without um, re- remaining connected, at least in some fashion, to its, uh, its unconscious um, uh, and embodied theses. Well, I guess, um, you know, I was thinking about it, I was reading Rosemary Balsam. I'm not sure if you're familiar with her work, and she has a new book called um, Women's Bodies and Psychoanalysis. And um, she has a quote that I think is pretty interesting when it comes to the contemporary response uh, to drive theory. She says, if drive theory and conflict defensive operations are dismissed as irrelevant, then penis envy, castration anxiety, and denigration of the clitoris do thankfully disappear as focal to a developmental theory about women. Yet the proponents of the alternative theories, and I think here she's referencing the relational, the intersubjective, do not offer any developmental theory that pays as close attention to the body as Freud did. Mm-hmm. Yeah, it's so, and in a way, I, it, I think what she's suggesting is that what we have are some feminist critiques of um, the more classical approach, you know, privileging penis envy or the Oedipal in a certain way. Um, and, uh, and so it's an attempt to move away from a biological essentialism. But can we have a drives without biological essentialism? Uh, well, yeah, I, I, first of all, I, I found what you read was quite um, 
uh, you know, in simpatico with with my line of thinking. Totally. Yeah. But but um, the issue of uh, of jettisoning drives. I mean, we have to under, we have to ask ourselves, what do we mean by a drive? And, and traditionally, uh, I don't believe the field really understands what Freud was saying. Uh, they never read his works, uh, particularly, uh, you know, in the German. Um, and there's an entirely different feel. Uh, you know, what we have are these English translations, such as instinct. And, but there's also a conditioning that we, I think, that we undergo when, uh, when we do our training that somehow these are antiquated categories. Right. And, um, and, and so the, the notion of embodiment uh, or, or gendered embodiment is um, uh, something that, uh, of course, you know, cannot just be dismissed. Um, it, it would be like dismissing, uh, you know, an empirical fact, mm-hmm. you know, such as that we, you know, we have hunger or, you know, that we uh, have to sleep or we have to eat and, uh, or have sex. And, I mean, these are things that are just given. It's, it's the way we want to to go about interpreting how they provide a basis for experience. And experience is, of course, organized on much um, higher uh, you know, realms and in dif- different spheres of psychic reality. So I, I, don't, I, I really think that there can be all these discourses that are valid and operative, but some are going to be uh, more relevant, uh, particularly you know, to practice, than others. Mm-hmm. Uh, we, I think we've replaced the term drive with desire. Yeah. And, and, you know, and, and our desires, of course, lead to conflicts. Uh, they lead to uh, you know, aff- affective dysregulations uh, that are still part of our embodiment. Um, not to separate them out, such as you know, drives are separate from feelings or emotions, or they're separate from motivation, they're separate from cognition. These are all very much operative uh, together, and, and yet, you know, yet we the way we go about talking about it. Sometimes we we, we don't understand people's discourses. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Yeah, um, I was also thinking that in the book you have um, you have a number of chapters that you sort of move sequentially, um, and you begin with uh, after your introduction, you begin with a critique of the use of uh, postmodernism uh, in psychoanalysis. And um, I guess I wanted to ask, first of all, why do you think psychoanalysis, aside from, you know, this being a contemporary moment and postmodernism is a theory, is, is you know, a, a sort of a, a school of thought, a theory of philosophy um, uh, that's very popular um, in the last, you know, 25, 30 years. But why do you think psychoanalysis has gotten itself so involved with postmodern with postmodern thinking? What what's the relationship there as you see it? Well, um, you know, it, it can be appealing on many levels. I, I think particularly it for those who are you know have a certain element of personal experiences that just they cannot relate to other people or they've identified with certain groups that have historically been disenfranchised uh, whether it be um, you know feminist or post-feminist or um, you know, racial or ethnic groups or those who just simply you know don't fit into um, the establishment um, the the glip populations people were 
where difference is magnified and, and they're comparing themselves to the so-called quote norm, uh, th this would would draw attention to them. Um, but you know, the the one thing that the postmodern project brings is a, a number of conundrums, and uh, so we have to be careful about the political and ethical um, motivations behind adopting the postmodern turn uh, uh, versus what theore theoretical contributions they uniquely bring. Mm -hmm. I was uh, had the thought as I was reading your chapter on postmodernism, um, I wonder, you know, you, can, you sit with a patient and you can really feel stupid, like you have no idea what's happening. For a long time, you know, and you have to tolerate feeling um, stupid and, and in the dark and insignificant and unsure. And I began to think about the turn toward postmodernism as sort of giving people um, a way that maybe the classical uh, uh, theory um, didn't to, to uh, reckon with or to make okay um, having some of those feelings. Does that make any sense to you? Um, maybe it helped for me to understand what do you mean by postmodernism. Well, that's a good question. Um, I'm thinking of sort of the critique, the the idea that there's, um, you know, there's there's no quote self. You can't um, fully know oneself. That there's a limit. Um, that it's perspectival. Um, that I can. Uh, only see you within the limits of, uh, you know, my own context, et cetera, et cetera. I, mean, that, I think some of, some of those ideas I see floating around and uh, being used by analysts um, in their writing about uh, postmodern uh, thinking in, in the psychoanalytic uh, frame. Yes. Uh, well, I, I guess I'd have to challenge a number of these things. Um, one would be it's... Um, you know, to be quite uh, pejorative, it, it's ridiculous to think that we don't have a self. I mean, who, who doesn't have a self? Uh, I mean, understanding what one is or oneself is is another issue. Right. And, and so um, the the thought that how could we um, have any kind of like even communication, let alone organized internal experience without... Um, uh, you know, some type of um, self-organization seems seems uh, you know unbelievable to me. But um, I imagine people aren't thinking about the, the philosophical parameters when they say that. Mm -hmm. But it's another, it's another thing to say I don't I don't really know who I am in you know fully or completely. And I would fully agree with that. Of course, we don't because right. we're in the process of becoming, and and, um, and so. I, I guess it really depends on those specific kinds of things that people are writing about, and um, yet at the same time, I can identify with that. I can identify with saying I I don't fully know, um, I don't pretend to know. I'm in the pursuit of of some type of a process of uh, looking for truth or universals or meaning in life, and there are many different forms or many different perspectives. And, and that I can fully agree in. So I, I'm, maybe we're not so far off in our, in our vocabulary and our attentions than we think. Mm -hmm. Interesting. I mean, I, I guess I'm also thinking that a lot of... Um, the, my sense is the use of postmodern thinking in the psychoanalytic context has... It, it can focus also on a critique of um, authority. 
I get that sense that sort of the analyst authority has importantly, and I, I don't, I don't work this way. So I, I think that authority is not not a bad thing in the in the consulting room, but that um, sort of in the spirit of 1968, the analyst authority has been um, uh, thrown thrown into question, um, and I wonder about the how that impacts uh, and how you would think what you think about the impact of that on the clinical um, on the clinical encounter yeah no it's it's a very important topic and I, I certainly am in sympathies with that line of thinking that if we are to um, assume that there is an authority figure out there the one who knows mm-hmm. uh, let's say the um, the objective scientist, uh, the those who claim to possess um, you know absolute knowledge, then you know we 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 think that that's preposterous. That that that's also a defense of grandiose uh, narcissism or pretense, and and yet um, to be honest, I don't know if I've really encountered anybody like that in the real world. There, so um, if, if we're setting up a straw man to attack, that's one thing, but, um, if, but I have encountered, of course, many people who feel they are right and they're intolerant to uh, critique or different points of view. Mm-hmm. And so, um, one might be reminded of one's professors or one's, um, you know, supervisors or training analysts or, or whoever that you've encountered that pretend to have the, um, uh, the one who knows, uh, and if you don't cater to that, then um, you know there's going to be some real consequences. Mm-hmm. So I, I very much uh, think that those uh, stances need to be challenged. Mm-hmm. But I, I was also the, I made the comment before about tolerating feeling um, stupid in the consulting room, and I'm thinking that the one who is supposed to know never has to sit with that feeling. <laughs> of, oh. of not knowing and uh, really being um, being really profoundly in the dark, but but I guess uh, my question is is in sort of the relational uh, reformulation of the, of the postmodern, it seems that everything things become about the here and now. There's this idea of co-creation, which um, you write about in the book, and and that somehow sort of objectivity and epistemology find themselves disavowed. So I was wondering, what, where's the unconscious in, um, when, when, when these ideas are, are at play? Where, is there an unconscious? or It just seems like it's, the focus is more on, on something much, much, much more conscious, this co-creation. Um, do you have thoughts about this? Yeah, well, I agree with that. Uh, it seems like that's where the emphasis is, um, at least from from the readings uh, that people present in their work, that it seems like the focus is upon the attunement to the here and now situation, mm-hmm. to the, the parameters of, of two subjects that are feeling one another out, that have a certain presence to bear on each other. And, and while I... While I would certainly contend that that's true and that happens, um, it, it does appear that we've, you know, we've we've lost our third ear. Mm. We're not we're not listening with that anymore. Um, and and yet I, I would imagine to be fair to people, I mean we don't know how everybody practices. Right. We've, 
you know, we don't know how they've amalgamated different theory uh, over the years, what they've identified with, what they have um, renounced, uh, how, how they uniquely uh, developed their own way of facilitating a professional relationship. Mm-hmm. And, and these kinds of nuances are very difficult to write about. Um, I, I can only go on my own experience, and, and that is um, where we are, we are looking for patterns. Um, whether they be defensive patterns, whether they be repetitions, whether they be transference enactments. And, and that's part of my work. It's, it's simply not to um, dismiss the fact that a person has come to see you and they're bringing their historical past to bear on, um, you know, on, on coming to see you as a professional. And from that point of view, there is an element of authority that we as analysts uh, or clinicians bring. And uh, if that wasn't the case, then why would somebody be paying an obscenely high amount of money to see me? Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Um, you also have in the book, um, you write a lot about the hermeneutical turn, I guess we call it. And I, I'm, I'm not sure that I think making meaning is curative. Um, what do you think making meaning is curative? And if, if so, how? Um, or? Well, that's that's interesting, um, uh, you know, thesis that you put forward that you don't see it as curative. And I guess we have to ask what that means. Mm-hmm. Because um, it, if we're using the metaphor of cure as such as inoculating against some kind of disease, then, then clearly... Um, you know, meaning might not, um, you know, serve uh, that purpose. Mm-hmm. But um, I, I'm reminded of what Freud said, uh, you know, that the best we can do is, um, you know, uh, turn neurotic misery into ordinary happiness. Uh-huh. Uh, but there is something essentially um, healing to meaning-making. And, and even if we don't like it, even if we find that truth unsavory, at least one um, one's level of awareness has been expanded. Mm-hmm. It it may open up a whole other can that we don't like, um, but nevertheless, it is what it is, and it's up to us to then take that information and, and make it uh, or integrate it in a meaningful fashion. Um, but I think ultimately that there has to be some some curative element to the pursuit of meaning, even if we never get there. Well, I think, I, I, let, me, let me add something to, to my question or flesh it out a little bit further, because one of the things that I wonder about is um, in sort of this focus on co-creation and mutuality and self-disclosure, these are you know, key, I think, key tenets of, um, you know, the relational um, work, um, I always think, what is the sort of pre-edible or pre-verbal, you know, the more narcissistically fragile patient do when confronted with, uh, it, it, seem, it seems to me that I think one of the things you say in the book is that, there's a, that the, conscious, uh, the conscious mind is, is, seems to be perhaps privileged um, within the relational. I... I just always put myself, you know, I say, well, what, what if I were in a fragile state? How do I work with this, the analyst's need for recognition? Um, how do I work with, uh, um, how do I survive that, um, actually? 
Very, very good observations. Um, I, yeah, it's a good, it's a good question. How, because the, la the last thing a narcissistic patient wants to hear is something coming out of your mouth. Right. Uh, let alone um, that they de that we would demand certain kind of uh, you know mutual recognition from them. Right. So it, I, I I'm not sure if people are actually practicing uh, in a manner that they would foist their own need or desire for their for their patient to acknowledge them. It may just be something that just transpires naturally once a relationship has been developed. Um, but but I'm in agreement with you that that a lot of these um, more regressed um, or or people who are on more you know primitive organizations of self development, uh, whether it be uh, you know narcissistically fragile or or you know you know people who have more schizoid phenomenon or or those on a, more of a borderline level of organization, um, that that type of technique would would probably backfire on you quite quickly. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I haven't seen it, and, you know, this could be, a, you know, an oversight on my part. I mean, I'm, you know, well, I'm well-read in the relational, but not, you know, fully well-read. I just, I, I never imagined that patient to be one that has pre-edible or pre-verbal conflicts, and, like, who doesn't? You know, so then I think, well, how do we work with that aspect of a person using... Um, uh, with these ideas, um, you know, dem I mean, there's a, there's an idea about democracy, you know, for instance, in, in the in the consulting room. Um, how do you know? It, it just it, it's puzzled me, and um, maybe you know, I mean, it's it's a way of working. Um, it's a theory that is about a more object related patient. Um, maybe that's that's who this this work uh, this way of working works best with, which you know is. It's fine, um, but I. Uh, yeah, well, I, I see. I, I guess the type of people I see are the same type of people you see. Yeah. Yeah, they, they, they have you know horrible developmental traumas. Yeah. And I don't think I've ever met an edible patient. Right. <laughs> so, uh, I, I uh, that would be a delight if I could have someone come in and and have the normal uh, your 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 garden variety neurotic who just wants to be Woody Allen and talk about his day. <laughs> Very funny. Yeah. But, but yeah, I just, it's, it's, it's an ongoing, it's an ongoing question, um, you know, in my mind about, about this particular school of thought of like what, what patient, different schools of thought, you can kind of wrap your mind around the different kind of patient that is, uh, is drawn, um, or can work, can be worked with, um, in this way. Um, you spend some time in the book um, uh, talking about something you term therapeutic excess. Um, and I was wondering if you could, in uh, the context of discussing the, the relational, what, what, what do you mean by therapeutic um, excess? And uh, wh what does it look like? And uh, <laughs> how, to, how to know it when we see it? Um, and what about it concerns you? Well, um, in reading the literature... Um, there are, there are certain analysts who have been very open about uh, the way they practice in the consulting room. And to be honest, I, I really find that to be valuable because we need to know what people actually say and what they do in, in, in order for us to, to have an honest discourse. So I do admire them in many ways for 
talking about what they communicate to patients. Um, but some of the material that I read, I, I found like, well, that's that seems to me to be quite dangerous, particularly when we talk about uh, excess. And what I mean that by that is that there are certain excessive um, forms of self-disclosure that, that I've seen uh, certain contemporary uh, you know, practitioners talk about. And it, it, whether it be uh, breaching confidentiality, whether it be uh, disclosing sexual feelings to patients in the session, mm-hmm. whether it be lying directly to patients, screaming at them while invading their face. And, and, uh, and I, of course, we don't know the context of all these things, but that there is a certain, at least uh, on the face of things, there may be a phenomenon that is happening in, in contemporary uh, circles where um, they just do whatever they want and they act out on certain countertransference uh, processes. And, and so that's where I think we, we need to be careful about, um, particularly about the, the, the realm and the range of disclosures that take place uh, you know, in session. Mm-hmm. What, what do you think the, um, because you, if you, you compare sort of the, um, probably the, the straw man of American, you know, 1950s American ego psychology, right? So you have this very sort of, you know, withdrawn or hard to access um, figure of the analyst. And then we have this other figure contemporarily of the analyst, as you said, screaming in someone's face. I mean, couldn't, couldn't be more different. Um, but I guess I, I, how do you understand, I mean, this, Generation, our generation's um, uh, such a s- strong reaction, and almost like a throwing out—it's a throwing out the baby with the bathwater. Um, mm-hmm. I, I would think um, to to that more reserved figure. Um, I, the, the year 1968 is always in my mind when I read the relational uh, work. Um, I don't know if that makes any sense to you, but just in terms of uh, the feelings about. Um, authority and uh, and about transparency, um, and I, I may have mentioned this to you in our lead up to the to the interview. I think I said something about being presenting at a an analytic institute, and an analyst said to me she did not like the use of the term psychoanalysis. I use it too frequently, and the use of the term unconscious, and she had very bad associations. Sort of, even though she's an analyst, to um, to these ideas, I was like, "What you know?" I, and I wonder what is t- what has taken place to so turn people against um, the drives, the unconscious. Um, yeah, they were prob- they were probably mistreated by their own analysts. Yeah, yeah, and then they 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 generalize that and project that as a transference phenomenon on onto theory, mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And, rather than um, you know thinking about the logical implications of what one says, such as there's no such thing as an unconscious. Well, that, that's amazing when people uh, will write about that or they'll allude to that, like everything is simply language or has been encapsulated by the speech act. Mm-hmm. Yeah. It's as if there's, uh, there's no dynamic unconscious activity that is uh, a priori or that is operating prior to experience. And you'll see that with the relationalists, like from Mitchell to Greenberg in particular, who um, more or less adopts a, 
uh, a view that um, there is no unconscious uh, prior to experience. Right. And, and um, I, I just don't buy that. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I think you write someplace that um, Mitchell, uh, his denunciation of the drives moves, is beyond displacement. It's actually a negation, which, of course, made me think about what negation is. <laughs> and uh, how it always contains within it its opposite. Uh, yes, uh, a doubling of the negative. Yeah, exa- exactly. Um, and so uh, it, it's almost it's a little painful to read some of the quotes um, that you have uh, in here from from Mitchell because they're so extreme. You know, you have to wonder if the the man was alive today, where would he be at with well, with, uh, with all this. We'd probably be having a dialogue. Right. Right. Yeah, I, I wonder about the, the impact of his death on, on the movement. Because, you know, if he could have critiqued himself, which I imagine he, he had that capacity, um, I, I wonder if it's... A, I, I sense in your book that you've received some very strong uh, reactions to your, um, your critique of... Um, Certain relational concepts or philosophical underpinnings, um, and uh, and your book is unique, certainly in that you have a chapter in which you really go into like what, who you know in a way who said what, uh, you know regarding uh, difficult um, exchanges with some key relational thinkers that there seemed to be no room for um, incorporating um, new ideas, and I wonder about Mitchell's death and the need to sort of defend. Uh, defend the tradition since he's not here to yeah and I think a lot of you know a lot of, of Mitchell's close friends have gone on to defend him and and of course there's a certain you know loving feelings that they have about this man and they wouldn't want uh, his work to be um, sullied mm-hmm. uh, but but I, I'm I, it really is nothing uh, personal right I hope I hope people don't don't take that take what I do as a, a direct assault or an attack on them personally. I'm really about interested in a critique of ideas, and um, that that's what I think ultimately will will push our field along to be more intellectually vibrant. And if if we don't have an openness to to critique and and differences of opinion. And then tolerating um, the reasons for those differences, then we're not going to advance. Right. Right. And I think as a, a field, we're you know always we're at risk of extinction. You know, there's kind of this, you know, are we are we going to survive? Is psychoanalysis going to survive? And internecine battles are, of course, not not usually that helpful. But another thing is, there. Um, you know, they t- they end up being more destructive than constructive. They end up being less about desire than maybe about the death drive. You know, the way the way that that things are handled. Um, and uh, it's really it was something to read that that your chapter about um, responses you've received and um, being sent. I think you were censored. Um, I can't remember the journal. Um, you know that there was censoriousness and. Um, I think Sandra Buchler, who I recently interviewed, called it, you know, psychoanalytic color wars, you know, that, that, that we, um, we can't seem to stop engaging in them, um, uh, apparently. Well, uh, yes, I, I, I think that as a profession, we love gossip, and <laughs> right. we just eat it up, um, 
and particularly about people who um, we may not like. <laughs> so, um, I, in some ways, I feel I've been the designated mourner in that, in, in that sense. But it, it's something I've I've chosen to take on as well. Um, I, I, you know, on one hand, um, there is a nasty side to psychoanalytic politics that's operative. Um, in any organization, just as it, as it mirrors real life. Mm -hmm. and, and yet, um, un unfortunately, when people exert their you know, power differentials and manipulate others, and, and they don't allow um, a process of, of academic freedom and exchange of ideas to continue, then that's, uh, that's upsetting to me. So I, I felt a need to talk about these things on a real level, uh, and not censor that because this is something that needs to be analyzed. Mm -hmm. it, it needs to be acknowledged. And it uh, often people write about these things when other people have died and they have uh, like a confessional. Um, <sighs> That's true, yes. When, uh, you know, if people are behaving badly uh, or unprofessionally, then they, they are not immune from criticism. Mm-hmm. Mm -hmm. Especially around censoring of you know uh, of academic freedom, so I, I felt the need to put that in there, and and I I hope it doesn't overshadow the other uh, aspects of the book because it seems like that um, people are are commenting about about that more than others. Well, you know, you know, it's funny. I um, I know that I've read some of the reviews, and people will will comment on that. And um, I was just thinking about how. Um, as a culture, you know, we're so interested in reality, right? Like, there's nothing like a documentary, so many documentary channels, reality TV. Um, and there's this chapter in your book which does get to sort of reality, like, this is real politics, this is what people said, this is what happened, this is what I said. Um, and I had the question, I, I, was, I was wondering, it, there seems to be a turn away um, in the relational movement from the intrapsychic or the inner world to the, in, to the interpersonal. Um, and it's, again, it's an orientation towards, um, towards reality. Um, do you think that the creation of the relational, of relational analysis is sort of part of the zeitgeist? Well, um, on one hand, I can fully identify with someone who is more uh, warm and open and accepting and uh, inviting rather than someone who's cold, stayed, emotionally reserved or removed. Uh, and, and I think this is the dichotomy of how we present uh, the classical and the relational analyst. Right. When when I think in reality, though, there's always a hybrid element. Um, and in, instead of the bifurcation between the intrapsychic and the interpersonal, they both are operative at once and together. It's just a matter of where is the emphasis being placed. And, and I, I, you know, I'm more of a comparative analyst, so I like to look at what, what people think in terms of um, theoretical foundations that drive their methodologies. And the relational, uh, you know, inevitability is, as you put it, uh, to, to recapture the notion of 68, is really uh, to rebel. 
that's to say, you know, I don't want to practice like that because this is unnatural or this is not meeting the, the real needs of patients. Um, and you just have to look at your own experience uh, of being in analysis uh, or with supervisors who will tell you to do things that you think are, are palpably bizarre <laughs> or just that are going to drive your patient away or are going to hurt them. And, and I think in, in many ways, though, this is what is fostered in, in analytic institutes is that, that you're supposed to just listen to daddy and do what you're told rather than to think through something and have your own um, your mind about it and have a real discussion. But everybody's worried about uh, failing, about being judged, about being shamed. Uh, and, and unfortunately, that kind of environment is, is not conducive to, you know, uh, you know, an intellectual kind of debate. Hmm. It's almost as if working analytically in some institutes... Um, only happens in the consulting room with the patient, but it doesn't happen in the training analysis or in the supervision. Uh, so I'm told by many people. Yeah. <laughs> yes, I, so, so I hear. I mean, I, I don't have that complaint about, about my institute, um, but I do, I do hear that a lot, the feeling that you have to do, um, do what you're told and, uh, and that people are hiding things from their supervisors because the supervisor, you know, wouldn't, wouldn't want to know about these things or would judge the the candidate for having certain kinds of feelings and reactions to patients. I mean, it's, it's pretty, it's pretty bleak um, to, mm-hmm. to think that people are, are being exposed um, to something very unanalytic in their training to be analysts. Um, well put. You were going to say? I was going to say that's well put. Yeah. It's, it's, it's not, um, uh, I, I was at a uh, meeting the other night and um, Otto, Kernberg was there at the meeting, and we were it's with a group called the Unbehagen, which is a group here in New York of um, mostly people in training or people who've left training midway or are considering training. And it's we're sort of asking the question about you know the formation of the analyst. So there's many Lacanians there, but it's not not just um, you know I'm there, I'm modern. There's interpersonalists there, and you know relational people. Um, it's sort of asking the question, you know, what what is it that that um, makes one uh, an analyst. So this group is kind of outside of the analytic um, training, and we meet and we have clinical study days, and we, we just do things. You know, we have speakers come. And, and um, Kernberg uh, came to uh, um, address the group, and now, of course, I forgot what my question was. So funny. Um, oh, something, he, he came to address the group and um, was talking to us about um, about training, you know, and he's written these articles, 30, you know, 30 ways to kill the creativity of a, of a, of a candidate. And, um, a question, a question I, I asked him, I said, you know, it seems when people graduate from institutes, um, they graduate also from supervision and analysis. And then the institutes become, they run amok. People, um, force feed, you know, their, uh, their trainees and their, 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 uh, Analyt, all the analytic candidates, um, and why do we give up so quickly our supervision and our analysis once we enter institute life? Mm. I don't know if that's what goes on in Canada, <laughs> but it, it does go on here. Well, I, I can't speak for, for everybody in Canada, but <laughs> I, I'm sure there, I'm going to echo that sentiment in some circles. Yeah, yeah, it's, it's something... 
Um, what else? I wanted to ask you um, a question also is, what is, does psychoanalysis um, need philosophy? I mean, you have a train, you're trained as a philosopher as well as in a psychologist and a psychoanalyst. What do you think of as a ideal relationship or a close to ideal relationship between um, psychoanalysis and, uh, and philosophy contemporarily? Well, I'm not sure it needs it, but um, I, I would argue that ultimately it's enriched by it. Um, it, particularly when we're when we're working with with complex ideas that evoke, um, whether it be phenomenological, epistemological, or ontological concerns, and, and so of course psychoanalysis does all of that. Not only that, it, it's even approaching what it means to be an ethical or moral human being. So if you don't if you don't have uh, some type of tr of training, even if it's your own self-reading and self-education in, in, in philosophical uh, circles, you're going to probably be hindered by understanding the complexity of things. Mm -hmm. I mean, it used to be that you know that philosophy did not it didn't segregate itself uh, from its subject matters, so it was interested in everything. Right. Yeah, I would uh, I would argue that psychoanalysis has uh, everything to gain by by philosophical fortification. Mm -hmm. And in terms of the relational movement, um, which is, I think, I, you know, as I said, an American homegrown product. I mean, can you do you have any sense of um, its relationship to various schools of American philosophy? I mean, do you find? Would you say that you know? James, for instance, resonates within, um, or any other sort of traditional American um, philosophers. Um, I suppose that you know the people who've been writing in the field, um, if it's, if they, they seem to be more um, all over the map. So, of course, wh who comes to mind is Donna Orange, mm. who I think is a pragmatist ultimately. Um, she has adopted James and, um, and, and Pierce's uh, notion of a pragmatic theory of truth that she refers to more as a perspectival. And so it, in many ways, uh, you know, American pragmatism could be um, viewed as operative within uh, contemporary uh, circles because it is asking the basic questions like what is useful? You know what is helpful. Uh, what what helps people uh, get their goals or needs met, mm -hmm. and and I think those pragmatic um, concerns are also what are driving the public in coming into treatment. Like, does it bake bread? <laughs> so you know, I'm coming in to see you. I, I'm hoping that you're going to help me, and um, and that means that one has to be attuned to the interpersonal nuances of tact and of pleasantries mm -hmm. that, uh, that perhaps maybe the, the old school or the old guard um, hadn't always fulfilled. Right. Right. Interesting. Um, you have an idea that I think people would be interested in understanding, um, and I believe you've published um, elsewhere uh, more fully about this, um, which is the idea of dialectical psychoanalysis. Um, could you just... Describe what you mean when you use this term dialectical psychoanalysis. 
Well, yes. Um, in a uh, you know, in a nutshell, it is a um, a neo-Hegelian notion of of how the dialectic is operative within a psychoanalytic context, and, and so ultimately, I'm interested in offering a psychoanalytic metaphysics that is trying to explain how psychic reality is constituted. Mm-hmm. And, and I really want to return to a radicalization of, of, of unconscious processes and, and believe that there is, in fact, an unconscious agency that is operative in, in everything that we do. And it conditions all of subjectivity and, and particularly consciousness. And, in fact, it's, it's the a priori ground that makes consciousness possible, hence makes relatedness possible. Or, or, or language. So when when contemporary people are writing about everything is, is based in language or everything boils down to uh, social construction, mm. they, they really have then not realized they've just um, completely uh, you know displaced the the, uh, the foundation of um, our field. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Uh- yeah, that's, I, I really was very interested in how you, uh, how you laid that out um, in this book. And I, you've written about it elsewhere, though, I believe. Is that correct? Yes, I, I published a, a book called Origins on the Genesis of Psychic Reality. Yeah. Uh, that's, that's, I, I lay out that system there. Yeah, it's, it's really, it's, it's, you have a paragraph, I think, in, in this book that just grabs it. And I, felt, I, I read it and I said, nothing's missing. You know, nothing struck me that nothing really was missing from that. There's room for everything, and you began um, at, a, at a substrate that um, uh, felt, uh, you know, really, really humane to me. Um, uh, is in- interestingly, last uh, was it last weekend or the weekend before the, the institute that I'm I, uh, am training at? Um, we had a conference with Nancy Chattero, and she was the featured speaker, and. Um, I asked her a question, um, or I said, I made a comment to her. I said, you know, around uh, my institute, you can hear people ask the question, who were you before you met your mother? And she, <laughs> she didn't like that, uh, that question, I don't think. That was not a, she said, how could there be a, a you, I mean, I understand, or an I before, you know, where you met your mother. But there is, there is something there, and, um, and I think that uh, part of your project is to, uh, if I understand it, is, is, to, is to fight for that uh, aspect of us uh, before there is an I or an ability to recognize a you and to make sure that that's not uh, lost uh, mm-hmm. to the, uh, in, in contemporary psychoanalysis. Um, so. Yes, yeah, I, 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 I don't see why um, uh, we need to exclude anyone or anything. Uh, it's really about a matter of emphasis. So um, I'm... Uh, you know, I'm certainly um, the type that would give golden apples all around. <laughs> all right, we're going to bring our our interview uh, to to a close. Uh, it's been uh, very uh, very delightful to to speak with you and to to hear your ideas. Um, we want to thank you for um, being with us at New Books and Psychoanalysis, and keep us posted about um, what's coming next. Send us your next book, you know, et cetera, because we're happy to talk to people. Again, so thank you very much, John Mills.
Well, thank you, Tracy, and congratulations on your Gradiva Award. Oh, thank you. <laughs> thank you. That was, that was a delight. And everybody, we'll, uh, we'll be back in, uh, I don't know when, probably a month or two months, and we're going to be looking at heterosexual masculinities um, with a book by um, Bruce uh, Reese and um, uh, Robert uh, Grossmark. So uh, until then, bye-bye, all for now.